Welcome to Focus on Success with Fazia Costi. Our program is designed to help you with executive function challenges. Our guest experts offer perspective, experience, and ideas to improve different aspects of your life. Now, here is your host, Fazia Costi. Hi, welcome to the show. I have Dr. Brett Anderson today, and he is going to talk to us about executive function and how it manifests in everyday life. So, Dr. Anderson, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your what training do you have? What what are your credentials? Yeah, uh, very good. So, when you said tell me about yourself, I thought you were going to say tell me about uh, what you do on a personal basis. What do you like to do for fun? And on that note, I love hiking. I love being outside, and that's pretty much where you can find me when I'm not practicing psychology. On more of a person uh, professional note, so. I'm a licensed psychologist here in Phoenix, Arizona, um, and so a little bit in terms of my credentials and background. So, licensed psychologist um, is is kind of like uh, what I do. I'm also a national national certified school psychologist, and I'm also a diplomate in school neuropsychology. Um, I know that's quite a few different credentials. I can talk a little bit about how I got there, if that sounds like a good idea, uh, Fazia. If you'd like to, I'd love to hear how you got into psychology and, and how you decided the path that you're currently on. So go ahead. Tell us about, tell us more about yourself. A little bit of a, a side note or maybe a joke here, but my older brother always said psychology majors are the ones that need it the most. So in other words, maybe <laughs> I got into psychology because of something in my background. Not the case. Um, so for all the listeners, if there was anything in my background that would indicate I wouldn't be a good psychologist, I wouldn't be in the position I am. So in all truth, uh, truthfulness and honesty, the reason why I got into psychology was because when I was an undergrad student, I transferred from a community college to a four-year college. So I was at Lincoln Land Community College and I was playing baseball with aspirations and dreams that I was going to be a baseball player. Well, um, <laughs> my baseball career didn't work out. Uh, <laughs> I played through college, but that was it. But then I had to find an actual job that I wanted to do. So uh, after community college, I took a psychology class at Lincoln Land. I really liked it. So I remember when I transferred to Western Illinois University, my junior year, I remember going to the counselor, uh, the guidance counselor in terms of majors and such. And I was really going back and forth between should I major in business management, uh, construction, and I was basically running around like a chicken with my head cut off of what am I going to major in? So after talking to different people, I was like, ah, I, I guess I'll give psychology a shot. I like my psychology class before. Let's go into psychology. Uh, so that's just kind of what I chose. It was kind of a shot in the dark, but um, I noticed that going through school, I ended up really liking all my undergrad psychology courses. Uh, it was very interesting to me. But then once undergrad was coming to a conclusion, and I was playing baseball at the time there as well, and that's kind of when my baseball career ended, I was like, okay. Now I got to figure out what I'm going to do after undergrad, and it's not going to be a professional baseball player. So that's when I was talking to graduate level professors at my school, Western Illinois University. They had a school psychology program, and I was like, I like psychology. I like working with children. 
maybe I should pursue this further. So I was talking to different professors. Um, some of my undergrad professors were also the graduate school psych professors. So I already had kind of an existing uh, rapport and relationship with them. So talking to them further about school psychology, I was like, sure, I'm going to go to graduate school for school, psych for school psychology. And that's exactly what I did. And, and just kind of a side note there, when someone chooses a program like school psychology, you can kind of learn a little bit about it, but you don't actually know what a school psychologist does until you get into it. So there is kind of a little bit of a, you know, I'm going to pursue this and I'm going to devote a lot of time and energy and training, but you really don't know what it's like until you're fully trained. Um, that said, sure. for me, it was going through the school psych program. It was very interesting to me. I went into it with the right intentions. I like psychology. I like working with children. And that's all what school psych's about. And then also I knew there were opportunities for further growth and development. My school psych program was just a three-year program, basically a master's degree plus like 60 hours, a specialist level program. But I always knew if I wanted to go get my doctorate and become licensed, which eventually I did, that was an, always an opportunity. So I knew within my career path, there was opportunities to branch off in different areas. So um, I, I knew I was kind of getting into the right field there. That's awesome. You know, and, and just for our listeners to know, um, Dr. Anderson and I actually know each other pretty well. We've worked together for a couple of years now and we do presentations together. So, you know, I would consider him a friend. And, and so we, we do know each other fairly well. And I, I think he's really good at his job. And I think he really loves working with people. So um, I, I think he's in the right field. Would it be worthwhile discussing with the listeners how we met? <laughs> Go for it. You tell them. <laughs> so I, I think it was, uh, I think it was a cloudy night uh, back in November. No, I'm just <laughs> You're funny. No, no, uh, Brett does like to joke around a lot. So just, just for the listeners to know, he, he's a little bit of a jokester. In, in um, all actuality, how we did meet was I, um, so after becoming a school psychologist, I learned right away that I wanted further information. I wanted further training because a lot of what I was doing, um, I didn't feel like I had the knowledge to be able to answer the questions that I wanted to in the correct way. So I went back to graduate school. I ended up getting my doctorate degree. I became very interested in neuropsychology. And when I became interested in neuropsychology, I ended up doing a two-year clinical neuropsychology postdoctoral residency. I know that's a mouthful. I almost had a hard time saying it myself, but basically I did a two-year residency in neuropsychology. During that residency in neuropsychology, I'm evaluating individuals' brain functions, and I was working a lot with adults and older adults, but when you evaluate somebody's brain, one of the things you look at are executive functions that we'll get into later, but what I was doing was I was working with a lot of individuals that had these executive function problems. And whenever that happened, I was looking for different resources of who can I send these individuals to to help work with their executive dysfunction, meaning problems with executive function. So I was searching the internet and, you know, uh, fortunately, Fazia has good SEO, meaning that when you type in executive function coach, Phoenix, Arizona, she's like the first person that comes up. So I she popped up. I went to her website. I was like, cool. This person has a great website. That means I'm going to send everybody to her. 
I, I say that uh, kind of truthfully, but also kind of jokingly because it's like, you know, a website's a website. Um, after sending a couple people to her, I was like, I really need to call this person and understand who she is. So then I called her and I was like, oh, not only are her websites great, this person is great too. So it, it ended up working out well. And then from there, um, as Fazia mentioned, uh, we've we developed a really great professional relationship and then just working with her so much. Uh, yeah, I definitely feel the same way that uh, Fazia is a good friend of mine uh, that we're able to collaborate and bounce ideas off and we do different presentations together. Um, it's a very good partnership and a very good relationship. So, Absolutely. And, and I, I appreciate you uh, sharing that story, Brett. It's, it's a good story. Uh, what is your favorite part of your job? What do you like to do? Um, I know you've told me that you enjoy testing, it, it, but you also work in a school. So what is it that you enjoy doing the most? I do. I enjoy testing. What, you know, this is, it's kind of funny and I'll get to like why. When I was in school, I hated taking tests. Tests are awful. I mean, like who wants to take a test? Probably the worst test I ever took was the most recent one when I became licensed back in 2017. That was kind of a nightmare. I, I did fine on it, but just like the anxiety of studying, worrying about it, taking the test, awful type of experience. Um, so anyway, in light of me hating taking tests, I was like, what a better job to have than just test people for a living. Uh, no. So <laughs> what I really appreciate about, and so like, you can say, yes, I do test people. But usually when you say test, what it indicates is that you're going to ask questions and get answers. And that's kind of what a test is. You know, you can say I do testing and, that, and that's fine. But I like to think of it more of an assessment or an evaluation. So it's not, from my perspective, when I'm working with a child, I don't necessarily care so much what they're getting right and wrong. I want to figure out how they come to the answers. I want to figure out why. And I want to be able to understand their thinking skills. Essentially, I want to understand how their brain's working. And yes, I have to do that through these tests. But what I can do as an examiner, as somebody that's sitting across from them administering these tests... I can go through every single item with them and I can see when they're becoming anxious, worried, sad, frustrated. And as a psychologist sitting there, I'm able to work with them through this. So likely if I'm going to be there with them while they're taking the test or they're, I'm not, they're going to have these same emotions. And again, who likes taking tests? I certainly don't. But of course, myself as a psychologist, when I take tests myself, I practice the same things that I tell others when I take tests. So I read items slowly. I pick out key details. I, I calm myself down. I use emotional regulation strategies. Children often don't have these strategies built in. They're, they're children. Um, we'll talk more about executive functions and how the brain develops a little later, but they don't have the experiences in the brain function to just be able to regulate their emotions and behavior. So myself as a psychologist can help do that for them, which is help calm them down. But also in real time, while they're taking these tests, teach them emotional regulation strategies that they can like use for their daily life. So my ultimate goal and focus is for individuals to feel better about themselves when they leave the assessment working with me than they did going in. And, you know, if I accomplish that, I think um, that in part itself is a job well done. You know, and, and I can honestly say that I, I've referred quite a few people to you and they've always come out of their evaluation saying, 
really nice things about you. So you definitely do a good job with that. Do, of course, because I just saw a slide him $20 afterwards and I say, say something good to me, a good about me to find it. I, I'm just <laughs> no, that, that is not being done. And I know I, you're, you're such a jokester. Again, completely kidding. But you are, I, I appreciate you saying that positive. That's nice. No, absolutely. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times people have come to me and said, you know, thank you for referring me to Dr. Anderson. He was really wonderful through the whole process. And so I feel good when I refer someone to you because I know they're going to be very well taken care of. Uh, do you prefer working in private practice or do you prefer working in schools? What's your, where do you get the most joy out of your job? I, I don't know if this is a cop-out answer, but both. Um, do I enjoy one more than the other? Um, there's elements that I enjoy about both of them equally. I, I don't, um, to be able to say I would choose one over the other would be uh, akin to saying that I would choose one sibling over another. I only have one child at the moment. So I can't <laughs> say if I had, if I had two children, I would assume it would be like choosing one child over the other. But let me, uh, I'll just kind of briefly talk about uh, what I like about working in the school setting more and what I like about working in private practice more. So working in the school setting, I work uh, with a multidisciplinary team. Yeah, I know that's a big jargon word, multidisciplinary team, but it really accurately describes who I'm working with working with. I'm working with speech language pathologists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, resource teachers, general education teachers, parents, the child. I'm working with a bunch of individuals to really help understand a student. And I learned so much information dealing and working with these other professionals. It's completely amazing. And that's completely helpful and really useful. That's not in private practice. Um, so that's good. And I really like doing that. There are times where uh, maybe staff members see things uh, differently and I, you know, I have to uh, pull things together. It's almost kind of like group counseling coming to a consensus among individuals that might disagree with one another. And that sometimes can be really hard and kind of frustrating. In private practice, it's all myself. And sometimes that's an advantage because it's like all I have to worry about is, you know, making sense in my own head, which hopefully most of the time is pretty easy, but I'm able to just call the shots, make the decisions, and it's pretty straightforward. I don't have to go through extra steps of collaborating with everybody, but sometimes that's a disadvantage because I would actually like to collaborate with uh, other people. So sometimes there, it can be grass is greener on the other side, but in private practice, I certainly have the freedom of doing whatever I want. So working in a school setting, you're working under policies and other things set forth by your employer. So you're basically working for somebody else, of course. In private practice, I'm the boss. I work for myself and, you know, I can do whatever I want. I can make my reports look however I want. I could use whatever language I want in my reports. I usually try to make them as user-friendly and practical as possible. Um, so, yeah, disadvantages and advantages to both, but um, they're both really great places to work. And I think working in both is super helpful. Because when I'm in the school and I get an outside evaluation, I completely understand it because I also work in outside private practice. Working in private practice, if I have to make recommendations to the school, I completely get it because I also work in the school. So having uh, the perspective and working on both sides is super instrumental when the other side, private practice, has to collaborate with the school or vice versa. 
Thank you for that. I, I really appreciate that um, very thorough answer. So tell me a little bit about the difference between a school evaluation and a neuropsychological evaluation and why someone would choose either one. Oh, uh, really good question. So a school evaluation could also be referred to as a psychoeducational evaluation. Typical school evaluations will, the goal and the purpose is to determine most of the times if the child is going to be eligible for special education services. What that would lend itself is, is my child eligible for an IEP? IEP is an individualized education plan or individualized education program. Program is what the P stands for, but a lot of people call it IEP as a plan. But anyway, if you go through a school evaluation, typically the goal is to determine if the kid's eligible for an IEP. And if the kid is eligible for an IEP, it opens up a ton of service and a ton of support that children otherwise wouldn't get. Mainly, you would be able to access a special education teacher that can provide the child with specialized instruction based on wherever they're learning. Not only do you get access to a special education teacher to provide individualized instruction, you're also entitled to accommodations and modifications, all that would be relevant to if the child's eligible for service, whatever they need services for. It's all based on need and it's all about access to resources and there's a ton of resources out there if you're eligible for an IEP. On the other side, if you go through a neuropsychological evaluation, uh, school psychologists, again, perform psychoeducational evaluations. School psychologists do not perform neuropsychological evaluations. What that would refer to is working with a licensed psychologist in private practice that, or maybe a hospital, there's some other settings, but working with a licensed psychologist who is thoroughly trained in neuropsychology. And the purpose is to understand brain function. So neuropsychology is the study of brain behavior relationship. So this evaluation is to study how the brain relates to behavior. And what a neuropsychological evaluation does is exactly measure different areas of brain function from the different areas of the brain are the frontal lobe, temporal lobes, parietal lobes, occipital lobe. You're measuring these different brain functions and you're understanding the individual, which will then lend itself to potential diagnoses and recommendations. I will say most individuals that go through a neuropsychological evaluation typically will have a known or suspected neurological condition. So a neurological condition would be um, traditional ones are like brain tumor, brain tumors, TBI, stroke, uh, neurodevelopmental uh, sort of conditions, uh, autoimmune sort of conditions, something that directly relates to brain function versus a school evaluation. Um, so some people may say a learning disability, dyslexia is a brain-related function, but learning disability evaluations aren't covered by insurance. So insurance companies uh, typically would deem a learning disability evaluation as not being medically necessary, whereas neuropsychological evaluations are medically necessary sort of evaluations. You know what? I, I really appreciate the depth in which you explain this. Could you also explain what a TBI is for our listeners? Because um, maybe not everyone knows what that means. Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, it's very common for psychologists or just educators in general to use a ton of acronyms, not even realizing that you just spat out some letters and 
you know, aside from the people in the field may not know that. Uh, anyway, TBI is traumatic brain injury. Uh, so a traumatic brain injury is just that when somebody ends up having um, sort of, some sort of injury where they end up injuring their brain. And there's different levels of traumatic brain injury, uh, mild, moderate, severe. When somebody does neuropsychological evaluations, kind of the neat part of things is when an individual comes into my office and they tell me about their history. If they've had a TBI, for example, there's already things that I'm wondering about. Well, first of all, I need to clarify the nature of their head injury. So how did they injure their head? What was that like? What was the severity level? And there's a ton of questions that go into that. So I wanna know the nature of the head injury in a very specific detail. I usually ask about the date that it happened, the time that it happened, what was the last thing they remember? What is the first thing that they remember after the brain injury, uh, traumatic brain injury? Did they lose consciousness? Uh, so many factors that go into that. And then what have they been like since? The age that it happened is really important. Uh, what happened afterwards is really important. Did they go to the hospital? Were they alert and oriented? Again, did they lose consciousness? All that will speak to the nature of the head injury. And depending on all that information, I'll already be thinking about what could I expect them to have difficulties with? What tests should I be able or what tests would make sense to give throughout the evaluation? And what sort of treatment recommendations should I provide also? Thank you very much for going into such depth. Um, just wanted to let you know that in a few minutes, we're going to take a break. So between now and our break, I'd like to set up uh, what we're going to talk about after break. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, executive function. Um, but before that, I want to talk about how do you uh, diagnose various disorders and rule out others. So if you could talk about that maybe for two to three minutes, and then we'll take our break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about evaluating executive functions and what they are. Yeah, so um, to be able to diagnose various disorders, it really takes a lot of understanding of what various disorders are. How do they present in everyday life? What sort of criteria do you use to say someone has a disorder or not? For most mental health professionals, such as myself, licensed psychologists, we typically use the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of um, psychiatric conditions, mental disorders, DSM-5 is the current edition, and that has criteria for all the different disorders, whether it's an emotional mood disorder, neurodevelopmental disorder, etc. So we use the DSM-5, like what I would do, and so in order to diagnose something, I have to be extremely familiar with the diagnostic criteria, but also the presentation of the individual. And it takes a lot of work of understanding the individual's background, the test results, the criteria, and determine whether or not they meet. And the experience is definitely very beneficial in figuring all that out. Are there any specific um, disorders that are harder to rule out than others? Oh, yeah. I, I was just thinking of like the most obscure uh, sort of disorder. Disassociative identity disorder is also known as multi multiple personality disorders. Uh, I mean, like things that are more rare are certainly going to be harder. And a lot of it depends on the individual and their expertise. So with my training in neuropsychology, I'm able to fluently understand how to evaluate and assess for TBI, whereas other licensed psychologists that don't have that training, they wouldn't be able to readily be able to do that. 
um, just like ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, personality disorders, et cetera. It kind of depends on the individual and what their training's like. Wonderful. So let's go ahead and talk about when we come back, we're going to talk about executive functions. Can you, within one minute, just kind of give us a quick little teaser as to what executive functions are? Um, yeah. Uh, so like Fozzie and I, yesterday, we did a presentation for SANG, uh, a gifted group on executive functions. And my first point was, it usually takes several hours to just for a professional to define executive functions. But the best teaser statement I could give is, executive functions typically are things that help regulate our behavior. Thank you. Yeah, no, you had also said something about how it's the CEO of your brain, and I love that. You're my thunder. I was going to save that for afterwards, but yeah. Oh, yes. No, I, I, I love that. I think that's that's a really good thing. So when we come back, we're going to talk about executive functions. Brett's going to describe what, exec- what executive functions are exactly as best he can in the time that we have left, and we're going to talk about some um, how they manifest in everyday life and some recommendations. Um, So we'll be back shortly with um, Dr. Brad Anderson. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. When you learn to see things from a spiritual perspective, it changes the way you see virtually everything in your life. Listen for Dr. Paula Joyce and her program, Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit. Our program will help you get rid of the negative aspects of your life and invite love, joy, and prosperity into your life. Turn that negative feeling into a positive one. Tune in to Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You need to live up to your full potential. You've heard that for years, but now there's a channel to help you get there. Introducing the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Our listeners have told us that they want to be motivated, hear about success stories, and positive encouragement around the clock. And we've responded to you. The Voice America Empowerment Channel is the home of the world's top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success experts. Listen to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's here at voiceamericaempowerment.com. Life can be confusing at times. There can be uncertainty, disappointment, and an inability to clearly see where you're headed. But it doesn't have to be this way at all if you understand how to take the next step in your life. Tune in to Living the Miracle with your hosts, Michael and Raphael Tamora. We'll help you to find the deeper meaning that awaits you in your life, have certainty in yourself, and learn to be clairvoyant. Listen Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. 
world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to Focus on Success. To reach Fazia Costi or her guest on the live show, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Fazia at executivefunctioncoachaz.com. Now, back to Focus on Success. Welcome back. Uh, today we're talking to Dr. Brett Anderson, um, psychologist, and we are talking um, about executive function, how it manifests in everyday life, and his recommendations, and how he evaluates those particular executive functions. So if you have questions, feel free to give Dr. Brett Anderson a call, and he'd be happy to answer your questions during the remainder of the show. Um, so Brett, would you like to tell us a little bit about what executive functions are, how they manifest in everyday life, and then we can talk about recommendations that you have. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so right before break, I started going into uh, executive functions are, it's kind of complicated to be able to uh, define very readily. I've been a part of presentations where I've seen the um, presenter uh, that are basically renowned uh, researchers within executive functions spend hours on end, four plus hours, just trying to define what executive functions are. Uh, but I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version and probably the best way to be able to understand this. Um, so executive functions are skills that help us regulate our behavior. So behavior regulational skills. They help us override our immediate behavior for long-term goals. Um, executive functions, some of the terms that are really associated with executive functions are things like planning, time management, inhibition. Those things, planning, time management, inhibition, all those refer to behavioral related things that help us control our actions in real time for something else. Planning is really important that we sit down before we do anything, we plan it out. So then when you have to execute a task, it is much easier to do the same thing with the others. And I do want to make a point of saying executive functions are not the same as intellectual skills. You can have very high level in intellectual skills. You can have high levels of intelligence but then have difficulties with executive functions. And one final thing that I'll mention in this part is that in terms of understanding what executive functions are, the best way I've thought of explaining it, uh, which I've heard from other people, of course, is executive functions are basically the brain boss. It's basically the CEO of the brain. So for instance, you know, you think about a CEO of a company, the CEO isn't necessarily the one that gets in there and performs tasks or get their hands dirty. They have workers that do that, but the CEO has to manage everything. They have to pull together all the different departments and areas to make sure that the company is going to go smoothly. Same thing with executive functions, uh, the CEO of the brain. So you have good intellectual skills, you have verbal skills, visual spatial processing skills. Without solid executive functions, something to pull all the information together, you may come across as 
looking not as intelligent as you actually are. So brain CEO is a good way to think of it. Brain boss, or one of the other examples is if you think of an orchestra, the conductor of the orchestra is essentially the executive functions because you have all the band instruments, you got the flutes, the clarinets, percussions, trombone, saxophone, et cetera. Without that conductor standing up in the front to help regulate all those different areas and pull it all together, the music's not gonna end up sound very good. Just like in the brain, if you don't have solid executive functions, it's gonna all fall apart. And I know I said that was the kind of last thing that I was gonna talk about in this part, but I wanna add one more thing, which I think is really important is when uh, I spoke a little bit about neuropsychology in the past, during this time, executive functions, it's a brain related function and it's part of the front part of the brain. The front part of the brain is called the frontal lobe. And within the front of the frontal lobe is the prefrontal cortex. When we talk about executive functions, we're talking about the front part of the brain. So I want to make sure I threw that in there. Yeah, no. And, and, you know, can you talk a little bit about the difference between executive function in children versus adults? And do, do people grow out of executive function challenges, Brett? Yeah, uh, good. All good question. So how the brain develops is the brain develops from the inside out and from the back to the front. So the front part of the brain is the last to develop. And that's where the executive functions are. And exactly executive functions and the front part of the brain does not actually fully develop until you're in the mid 20s. So when you take a child or infant, you can see they don't have really good self-regulation skills. It's not just because they're a baby. The reason why is their brain's not fully developed and the front part of the brain isn't fully developed. And we see over the time, over the course of life, as children get older and as their brain develops more and as their frontal part of the brain develops more, their executive functions, the CEO of the brain also improves. Um, so just in general, for young children, it is not uncommon to see problems with planning, organization, reasoning, because not just because they're young children, but the front part of the brain hasn't fully developed. For adults, even individuals in their 30s and 40s, they may have difficulties with that too, of course. They may have executive function deficits, which could be in part related to brain development, but it also could be related to environment because executive functions are skills that are learned over time. And a great example of this is I myself have a six-month-old child at home and I can see he doesn't have any executive function skills. I have to regulate all of his behavior for him. And if I, as a parent, do not teach him good problem solving and good strategies, he's not going to learn those and it's going to be kind of a mess. So as a parent, I have to do the best job that I can to teach him self-regulation skills. Thank you very much. I, I do appreciate the depth in which you go into these questions. Uh, when somebody comes to you to evaluate their executive function skills and they're looking to maybe get testing done, what kind of um, everyday issues are they having? What, how, does, how does this manifest in their everyday life? Um, good question, Fazia. And I think uh, because we've worked together before and we've um, shared some different individuals, and I think you'll, you've ended up seeing a lot of what I've seen too. Uh, usually the most common things are 
organization, organization being able to organize their life, whether that's behaviorally and figure things out, or it could even be mental organization, someone that just has so much going on in their mind that they can't straighten things out. And sometimes that mental disorganization can manifest or look like they have ADHD. So uh, somebody that's just not well organized or kind of scattered, maybe digresses a lot and goes from one thing to the next is very tangential. <laughs> but, you know, we can always all do that. And I'm certainly verbose, tangential. I go on and on. I switch topics quickly, but I'm functional. So, so it's okay. Uh, but some people will have mental disorganization. And sometimes that will look like they're having ADHD. But also, if you're mentally disorganized, that can be very stressful. And then it can bring about anxiety or sadness. And then maybe it lends itself to different diagnoses that way. And then different ways of treating could be medication or therapy, treatment, and executive function coach. When I evaluate individuals, what I do is I look at not only their difficulties they're having, but just kind of their background history, everyday life to be able to help understand is this an individual that should see a medical doctor for possible medication or should they see somebody for more behavioral sort of regulation training, that being like a psychotherapist if they're really sad or uh, would an executive function coach such as Fazia be really helpful uh, to help clarify that mental organization. Uh, so those are all things that I think of when it comes to not only the evaluation, but recommending any sort of treatment for them. Thank you. Um, so like you and I have worked together quite a bit and, and I actually see a huge difference in how executive function deficiencies manifest in younger kids versus adults, because I work with kids and adults. Do you see a huge difference when they come to you for an evaluation? And, and if so, what do you see? Um. Yeah. And so to your point too, I've done a lot of work with adults as well as children. I pretty much more specialize in children. Um, and sometimes it manifests as being the same way. I, I was kind of interested in when you said that uh, you oftentimes see big differences. Could you kind of give me an example of some of the big differences you'll see with children and adults? Not to flip the question on you, but it's just what I did. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, actually, when I see kids, it's usually related to school. Um, and their executive function skills are not developed. So we have to kind of scaffold those skill sets. Whereas with an adult, they just really haven't learned it. So we can kind of introduce maybe organization or time management, and we can introduce the concept at a higher level, and they tend to master it much quicker. And when you say scaffold, do you mean that you go outside of their house and you put up all those structures to get up on the scaffolding? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, That's not, yes, no. Um, scaffolding is when we build the skill sets one on top of another. So like, for example, you're going to learn how to add and subtract before you're going to learn to multiply and divide. That's scaffolding is building skill sets one on top of another. So when a younger kid comes in and they're having difficulty with organization or time management or whatever it is that they're deficient in, we start with a very basic level to make sure that there's no gaps in their learning. So we, we kind of make sure that they're learning the skill set from the bottom up. Yes, and I can say that I used to do remodeling during like school breaks and closings. 
I absolutely hated remodeling. So I hated getting up on any sort of scaffolding for construction purposes. However, scaffolding, amazing concept when it's applied to education, because I was speaking a little bit about like IEPs before. Basically for any children, any child, what's important is that we meet children at their instructional level. And sometimes that's above average, average or gifted, whatever. But for individuals that are really struggling and have different deficiencies or deficits, it's important to meet them at their instructional level. And then once you meet them there, you kind of slowly help them. And that's kind of like where you're doing what Fazia just mentioned is scaffolding. You meet them where they're at, and then you basically slowly build upon those skills. Uh, so, so yeah. So what kind of recommendations would you make to your clients, your, your patients, when they come to you with executive function challenges? Where, where do you send them? What, I know you talked a little bit about, you know, executive function coaching or sending them to a therapist, but who would you normally refer to? Um, it, does it depend on the actual skill that they're needing help with? It, how, how do you make that decision? Yes. And so, Fazi, you've seen some of my reports after I've worked with individuals and you can give me real feedback through the air. Uh, but what I try to do when I make recommendations is if they're having any executive function problems or executive dysfunction, uh, let's just say working memory. I tried to put in my report ways of being able to accommodate and help those working memory problems. So working memory is difficulty holding a lot of information in your mind and doing something with it. A good example of a working memory task is following multi-step directions. So my recommendations are how you can accommodate for that. And I would say what you can do is write information down. Another really useful thing is using a whiteboard, uh, using different organizational strategies. So I bring up those two individuals, but when I make those recommendations, I typically don't see them out and carry them out with them. So I'm not going, so like I mentioned, like use a whiteboard or use a planner. But even though for a lot of individuals, that's kind of like a, a no-brainer sort of concept, there actually is kind of a skill set that goes into how to use a planner, how to use it effectively, how to make sure you continue using it. Um, and see out that process. So since I don't do that, what I would do is refer to Fazia because that's exactly what you do. You see individuals out through the treatment process. Uh, so you would work with them over periods of time because what I would wanna know for an individual with working memory problems, I might recommend a whiteboard and they're like, cool, I'm with that, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna go out and get that. I'm gonna try and make that work. We may find out for some reason that that's not an effective way for them to be able to um, manage their working memory. So it's really important for an individual then to be uh, able to say, all right, so that didn't work out. Let's try something else. Something else. Let's try a notebook. Let's try a tape recorder. But you need somebody like a coach that's able to help you out through this process. And when that happens, that's exactly what Fazia does. She's able to help see people out through these intervention processes. And if something doesn't work, she brainstorms something different uh, throughout kind of the intervention process. Um, outside of that, uh, there could be other recommendations if someone's interested in medication management, 
I don't do them at a medical doctor, so I could refer to a psychiatrist or whatnot, or if they're interested in other options, uh, neurofeedback, uh, that's another form of kind of an alternative medical form to not necessarily taking medication. It's another form of like biofeedback treatment. Uh, that might be a, an option too. So it just kind of depends. And it all, when I say it depends, it depends on that individual. So I try not to say that this is what I'm going to recommend for anyone with an executive function problem. It all depends on that person in front of me. So um, when I see people who have executive function challenges, especially kids, I see them come in with a whole list of executive function challenges. Like they have trouble with cognitive flexibility, problem solving, uh, organization, time management, focus. I might see like a whole bunch of those. Do you find that you just see one issue or a grouping of issues or, or when somebody comes in, do they just have an issue with like everything across the board? Yes, basically everything you said under the sun. And so like all those different things, cognitive flexibility, selective attention, sustained attention, uh, reasoning, problem solving, working memory, task initiation, task planning, uh, task completion, um, you name it, any sort of executive function problem out there, um, I see, and I see it across all ranges from children as young as four years old, all the way up to uh, children that are graduating high school, or well, I guess young adults or teenagers graduating high school, college students, and then even adults in the workforce. And if somebody has difficulties with planning and they're six, I'm definitely going to probably recommend something different than uh, a 25-year-old that has planning difficulties. So it really depends on age, developmental level, environment, and that individual with what I'm going to recommend. But no, I, I don't just see the same executive function problem for the same people. It's, it's very across the board. Are, are there certain executive function challenges that are specific that are mo- more common than others in different age groups? Uh, yeah, I would say cognitive flexibility is usually, you know, probably out of uh, a lot of the executive functions that might be one of the most uh, common. So cognitive flexibility is being able to shift your thinking. A lot of times people will get stuck on something and they'll have a hard time getting away from that. And it's kind of getting mentally stuck. And, you know, I I experience this myself at home. When I'm doing work at home, if I'm writing a report or something, it's really hard for me to then stop doing what I'm doing if I'm not ready. Like if I'm in the middle of a report and then, you know, someone were to say something to me, I likely don't even hear what they said because my mind is still focused on whatever it is. And then I have a hard time kind of shifting my thinking. You know, I work around it. But cognitive flexibility and kind of that shifting of thought, that's something that I oftentimes hear. And sometimes people will come in and say, I have memory problems. I can't remember what somebody told me. And then when I evaluate them, I'm like, your memory is perfectly fine. What is happening is you have a tendency to get stuck in your mind on certain concepts, and then you're not able to take in new information. And then it manifests as having a memory problem when actually it's a cognitive flexibility problem. And what age group do you normally see the flexible thinking as an issue? I mean, is it throughout the entire age span or is, does it become more common in certain age groups? That, that's definitely throughout the entire age span. Um, and actually, so there's a part of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. 
I said that really fast on purpose because it's such a crazy long name. Dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. It is the back of the front of the brain, the back of the front of the brain. <laughs> that is correct. And it's on the side. And that is an area for whatever reason. And a lot of conditions you see in the DSM-5, whether you have ADHD or mood-related sort of problems like um, for children, ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, uh, anxiety, depression. A lot of times it is very difficult for individuals with whatever conditions could fall in the DSM-5 have hard times with shifting their thinking and have a tendency to get stuck on certain stuff. And a lot of it has to do with emotional regulation. The better somebody is at regulating their emotions, probably the more flexible they can be in their thinking. But probably what contributes a lot to this is, or maybe at least in part, I think very highly of the schools. Um, schools usually um, help work with academics and such. At least for myself, maybe I'll just speak from my own experiences. I wasn't taught throughout school how to regulate my own emotions. I had to just figure that out through life. But fortunately, I had the mind and the wherewithal to learn how to do that. But if somebody doesn't have those supports and the systems to be able to help teach them how to deal with emotional regulation, it can end up being kind of a mess. But then if you have troubles with emotional regulation, you can then have difficulties with cognitive flexibility and other executive functions. Thank you very much. Um, the last question that I really want to ask you before I talk about um, the, okay, actually it's not the last question. I'm going to ask you a question about stress. Right now, everyone is under tremendous stress. Does stress impact executive function skills? Yeah, for sure. And it, that goes right along with what I said about emotional regulation the more stressed that we are, um, and there's a part of the brain called the amygdala uh, that is really responsible for being able to regulate our emotions and our stress level, kind of fight or flight sort of thing. The more stressed that we are, when we talked about, and Fozzie even mentioned some executive function terms, how well can we plan when we're stressed? That probably goes completely out the window. How good is our time management when we're stressed? probably really poor. How well can we shift our thinking when we're stressed? Probably not very good. Uh, so definitely stress really contributes to executive function problems. Um, did, is that what you asked? Or did you ask like, uh, what do we do about it then? No, that was the question. Actually, my next question is, so what do you normally recommend? Like when I recommend something to help reduce stress, it's usually something like, you know, meditation or maybe even hypnotherapy. What do you recommend? So even though I'm a psychologist, I don't think I'm a psychic, but I already read your mind there. <laughs> so what we do about those sort of things and kind of the recommendation is, again, it depends on the individual. Sometimes having psychotherapy, working with a psychologist to uh, deal with emotions can be very beneficial. Sometimes working with an executive function coach can be very beneficial. Sometimes medication management, if I refer them to a medical doctor, that's something they can discuss. That can be beneficial too. It just, again, depends on that individual and what would be best for them. Brad, I want to really thank you for your time today. You've been very informative and very helpful. We've it's just, been fun. Yeah, we've got a couple minutes left. And the last thing that I want to talk about 
is what is, if you were just going to give one bit of advice um, to our listeners, what would it be? If you want them to know one thing, what would that be? What I and, would say is. Yeah. And, and if they have any questions, how can they reach you? So if any of the listeners out there are dealing with anything that's stressful, bad or whatever, my biggest piece of advice is just keep in mind, it's going to be okay. Things are going to be okay. And if you're having a hard time with making things okay, reach out to somebody, reach out to a friend, a family member, someone that is really close to you, um, you know, within your family circle and network. And if things are still not going out, going well, reach out to a professional, reach out to a psychologist, a counselor, a social worker, an executive function coach, myself, Fazia, we're here, we're, you know, we both answer our own calls. We do free consults. Feel free to reach out to us. We are more than happy to help you out and, you know, figure out how we can make things okay. In terms of, you asked me, you asked me two questions and I remembered both. I have some good working memory skills. It was a test. <laughs> the other one about how to reach me is you could type in, so my last name is Anderson, spelled S-E-N. So it makes it a little bit more complicated than that S-O-N. You can type into Google, Dr. Brett Anderson, D-R, Dr. Brett, B-R-E-T-T, last name Anderson, A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N. So Dr. Brett Anderson. And then my website will come up. My website is andersonpsychology.com, A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N, psychology.com. Thank you. Feel free to give me a call, 602-699-4543. Thank you so much, Brad. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. And I thank you all for listening. Um, Make sure you join us next week. Next week, we'll be meeting with uh, Mackenzie Douglas. She is the Director of Admissions in Fusion Academy. And she will be talking to us about how... Um, they work with their individual students. They have one-on-one instruction with their students, and she's going to talk about how they handle executive function challenges within their school setting. So once again, thank you very much for your time. I look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Focus on Success. Please join your host, Fazia Costi, for another program next Wednesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until we talk again, have a great week.